Well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to see your faces. Uh, I appreciate your prayers. Uh, two weeks ago, I was pretty sick. And <clears throat> last Sunday, you know, Saturday afternoon, I texted Johnny and said, <clears throat> Johnny, sorry, but I thought it was going to be better. And that is, it was not the case. I was still very sick. Uh, if you've ever had these moments of sickness where you feel like somebody's sitting on your chest and you just can't breathe, that was kind of like how I was feeling. So every time I tried to like take a deep breath, it was stopped, you know, it was a very weird feeling and uh, I knew that I was in a bad way when I couldn't even, you know, practice what I was about to say, much less say it out loud without coughing all over the place. So in my... <laughs> In my weakness, I had to admit that I could not do what I was seeking to do, which is preach the word faithfully and love you guys as much as I could, so I needed to call in the bullpen. And Johnny came in and closed the deal. From what I hear, he did very well. So thanks, Johnny. Fill in. Last second. For four hours, I heard. You gave everybody that, that tidbit of information. Um, but, you know, sickness is not something just merely physical, uh, sickness is something that we all kind of experience um, spiritually also, that we go through life and we, we're trying to rid ourselves of a spiritual sickness that, um, that we all have. In fact, without the gospel, we, we kind of live in that sickness and we don't even know it's there. We kind of live in a, in a state of sin and oppression that there would, it would not otherwise, we would not otherwise know about unless God revealed it to us by his grace. And that's where his word comes in. That's where evangelists come in. That's where preachers come in. That's where good just Christian brothers and sisters come in to our lives. They remind us of our sinfulness sometimes, and that hurts. And sometimes we need to deal with that sickness that we have. But all for the same purpose, all for one purpose, and that is to glorify God so that we might be rid of that sin, that we might be made pure by, from that sin, that we might not hold on to a weight that is dragging us down so that we might be unified with the body, with the body of Christ here on earth. See, one thing I'm realizing more and more as I grow and as more, you know, more gray hairs I get, uh, my wife cut my hair last night and I looked over and I went, oh my land, it's just wisdom keeps coming out of my hair. <laughs> ah, the more and more I grow, though, the more and more I realize that wisdom is lacking, even amongst the people of God. Wisdom's definitely lacking in the world. I mean, look at it. Go spend two minutes on social media, you'll find a whole bunch of foolishness. Go look and see what is we are going through in our world, and nobody seems to be able to say anything straight. Nobody can act according to love. In fact, we would rather you know talk about things, not talk to those things, or talk about people, but not to those people. I mean, and how can we fault the world for that? We can't. In reality. Reality says that they're going to do that because they only have one version of the story, right? But as Christians, we need to seek wisdom and understanding with one another. 
So today, I'm just gonna be real honest. Today is about a subject that I myself am, I, I not just struggle with, but I feel like even when you do it right, even when I watch somebody do it right, or you know, you come under attack because of misunderstandings. You come under attack because of the, the lack of grace for one another. And so I want us to look at Titus 3, chapter 3, 1 through 11 together. Because we've been singing all about how we have been restored to Christ and one another by his work and his good pleasure, for his glory, for what, not because of what we have done, because what we have done is only, you know, condemned us to needing Christ. And that's actually just revealed our actual need for a savior. But because of what Christ has done. We started this morning with Psalm 133, how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. We've confessed that we don't always dwell in unity. We confessed even that we sometimes have foolish, we involve ourselves in foolish controversies and quarrels. Titus 3 is a pattern of wisdom for Christians. It's a pattern of wisdom that's called profitable. It's called trustworthy. That's called excellent. And so as we read God's word together, let us hear this wisdom that God has given us through his apostle Paul, through his church. Would you stand with me as we hear the word of the Lord Titus 3, 1 to 11 says this. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the works by, done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, for whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. This saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, this is your word, and it is profitable to make us more like your son. Oh, Spirit, Lift our eyes to Jesus that your world might be done in our, in our midst today. Show us what it is. Teach us what, what foolish 
controversies and division looks like. Show us how to live and dwell in unity with one another. For it is the greatest pleasure that we have to dwell with you and your people. Lord, show us your glory in the midst of today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So the takeaway for today, and I want to give you kind of an outline of what we're going to do. To be honest, today is not the most polished sermon that I've ever written, uh, at least from my own standards. But I want you to take away this, that Christian conduct in conflict leads to unity, not division. Christian conduct in conflict leads to unity, not division. See, Titus 3 is all about dwelling with one another in unity, bearing with one another because of what God has done, because of his goodness, relying on his mercy and his gentleness toward us so that we might richly be able to dwell with one another in unity that Jesus Christ has given us in spite of ourselves. And so verse one to seven are kind of set up verses for today. And I'm just gonna jump straight into verse eight. So forgive me, I'm not going to impact all of it. It would take us hours. It would take me days. So um, let's look at verse eight. And notice this, the saying is trustworthy. Paul is saying that this saying is trustworthy, that everything he had said before this, that the the goodness and the loving kindness of God and our Savior has appeared. And so therefore, we need to avoid certain things. We need to love one another. In fact, it says this, "I, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may devote themselves to good works. Good works for God and God's glory alone. See, Paul has demonstrated the difference between the false teachers that Titus is dealing with, and this is a little bit of background context, and what truly concerned Christians should be dealing with and how they should be dealing with things. Christians, the people of God, once had the same tendencies of the world. They quarreled, were harsh for gain, disobedience to rulers, spoke evil of one another. Slaves were slaves to their passions, hated and acted on hate. But now that God has liberated them from all of these things, including the bondage of death, that is sin, he has poured out his mercy on them. He has washed them and purified them from their debilitating and deadly dispositions. He has given them grace upon grace to glorify himself and make himself known. See, Paul put it this way back in chapter one when he you know, made the difference between the false teachers that Titus is dealing with and the teachers and uh, Christianity, the, what he wants people to dwell on. He says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled all th- and believing, nothing is pure. He's saying that we should be dwelling on the pure things because those pure things have made us right with God. Not to be distracted by the things that, have, that are of this world. See, the Christian disposition is one characterized by purity and longing for purity. They see the world around them through the eyes of God. Because of his regenerating power over their hearts, they are now able to be obedient when they once were disobedient. They can have grace when there was no way to have grace before. They can have patience when they could have no patience before. They have peace where peace was impossible. They have hope when there was no hope to be found. 
A Christian's heart is one where purity reigns because the spirit reigns in and over them. So Paul tells Titus to insist on these things so that good works might be done. The good works that Christians should be devoting themselves to, we don't know generally as the works of God's grace. Giving grace to a world and to one another that requires the most intimate representations of God's character towards sinners. See, Christians are to be grace personified, conduits of God's living grace in their lives, especially to a dead and dying world. These things are excellent and they are profitable. And it is our goal as a church to share with one another in. But verse nine demonstrates what happens and what can happen when you take your eyes off that grace. When you are distracted from the things of God and put your eyes on the things of the world, you inevitably will find yourself wrapped up in worldly things. Is that not true in your own lives? Every time you take your eyes off of Jesus and the truth that is who he is and what he has won you for, how many times is it easy enough to just believe something blindly because you took your eyes off the grace that God has given you? Don't do that. Let verse nine stand as a warning. Let us avoid Here's point number one. Avoid distractions from grace. Avoid distractions from grace. Verse nine states this, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. They are unprofitable and worthless. The warning for all of God's people is plain to see here, but we should not be distracted from doing the good works that God has put before us by anything. And that we should not be distracted, particularly by foolish controversies and questions. I believe the King James says, avoid foolish questions. And it's not because you can't ask questions. You should ask questions. But asking questions in faith is very different than asking questions in any other respect. Whether to be right or whether to find something out that is unprofitable or worthless. See, Paul outlines the worthless nature of these distractions to help Titus teach how to recognize division. To be sure, he is referring to controversy back in chapter one that he's already described about the circumcision party. See, they were passing and pressing for actions according to the law to qualify someone to be a Christian. You know, they were saying, you must be circumcised to be in the kingdom. And, and that flies in the face of everything that Christ has already done. Why would I need to be circumcised to be in the kingdom when Christ on his own work and his own mercy has saved me? Not by the works of righteousness, which would be considered circumcision in the Old Testament, but by his grace, which he has poured out us on us richly. See, the requirements for purity or identification with the kingdom of God were condemning on their face because they ignored the reality of Christ and his work. Their actions and rationales were distractions from grace itself. Their actions and words were levying law where there was no law. This, this is like classic legalism. Paul condemns this so-called wisdom of theirs as legalism, defiled, unprofitable, and worthless with the reality when he, crossed, when he contrasted it with the reality of God's making. And this reality should not be lost on us. In fact, it should be all that our eyes are fixed to. 
God has saved us for a purpose, and that is to glorify him. It is to help one another glorify him and to not let anything distract us from doing the works that he has called us to. But why would Paul take the time to address something that just seems so obvious? Like, yo, you shouldn't get circumcised because of what Christ did. Christ is the circumcision. You know, you, you have your heart circumcised. Why would it, I need to get circumcised? Why, why would he even spend time addressing something like this? He tells us though. He says it's dividing whole households from one another. Simply speaking, it's because this foolish controversy has bred division. So he calls upon Titus to teach his congregation to avoid foolish controversies that are unnecessary in the first place. Genealogies that would lend someone some credence or authority when they were not even leaning on the truth in the first place. Dissensions that unnecessarily fracture people from one another and quarrels about irrelevant topics. Such people who act in these ways must be dealt with and they must be dealt with swiftly because of the division that it breeds when foolish controversies come to light. See, as Christians seeking unity, that's the goal, right? We want to be unified in all things. We want to be unified in Christ Jesus under what his works are for his glory and under his grace. We must avoid these distractions from grace at all costs. Why? Because the local church is the representation of Christ to the world. It is the reality formed by God for the glory of God and by the grace of God in spite of our own sinful natures, in spite of our own selves. And so we must protect that unity of the body from anything that would distract it from that grace. We protect that unity by focusing on God and his works. We protect that unity by dealing with conflict in God-honoring ways. Paul is teaching his congregation, teaching us to avoid these things so that we do not enter into conflict when it was unnecessary at the beginning. We must conduct ourselves in a Christian manner so that we might have unity, not division. And to take our eyes off the grace that we have been given and that grace that holds us secure is to find ourselves susceptible to being coming swept away by these foolish controversies and dissension. But let me ask you a question. How many times have you found yourself in the midst of conflict and division and you didn't even know it at the time? Only looking back in hindsight can you see that it was wrong. How many times have you seen something, for instance, happen in a church and then form an opinion without seeking understanding? Uh, based on appearances, you made a judgment. Forming an opinion without getting information directly from the person responsible or, you know, just asking questions in general. How many times have we made judgment calls without grace, enough grace to be able to, to understand what we, what the truth is? It is wrong to make judgments based on appearances. The Lord himself tells us in John 7, 24, that you should not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. See, he's talking to the Pharisees when he says that. The Pharisees looked perfect. Their actions were perfect, at least as far as they could be. The way I like to talk about it is their tassels were very clean, but in reality, they were filthy. Because their hearts are what is where the, the seat of sin is, not their exterior appearances. So judge with right judgment. 
don't judge on appearances. But we find ourselves making opinion, opinions about things that appear all the time. I mean, we, we, we do this all the time. In fact, if you just want some evidence about this, go to Twitter. You'll find the cesspool of all things foolish. You'll find a, a, a tro treasure trove of just stupidity because of judging things based on their appearance. To, but to truly honor one another, and this is what I'm getting at, to truly honor one another, we must be able to avoid distractions from grace. We must be able to seek unity and focus our lives on the grace God has provided in Christ and not on the situations that seemingly are bad or seemingly, you know, arising conflict within us or between the people. That is what Paul's warning us about here. He's imploring us to believe and act on grace and love. He's, he's imploring us to look like 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to, and following Christians. You guys have heard this passage. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This comes in the midst of figuring out how to operate as a church. In, in the midst of a section of how do we deal with one another who are different in the church? It says to be characterized by love. We should be willing to approach each other in love and honor one another as Christ has taught us to honor one another. So the question before us is how do we avoid these distractions from grace? How do we actually have this mind of love that we are supposed to have for one another? How do we protect the unity of body when distractions do occur? Because they will. We all know that. So what kind of distractions are we even looking for? Because typically we don't have doctrinal controversies like circumcision versus non-circumcision. I don't think this church has ever really dealt with that. You know, but it is, it is fair to say that some doctrinal controversies have arisen, at least in my time here. And it mostly just relies on clarity, right? We're, for instance, a Baptist church. So my friends, uh, I have lots of Presbyterian friends and one of my Presbyterian brothers, I, we were having a conversation about how we'd like to do worship and how we have a liturgy and it's very defined. And, and he's like, man, that sounds great. I would love to worship at your church. And the next thing he said is, but you're Baptist. <laughs> he realized that there's something that divides our, our, how we join with one another, right? And so he's not going to come into the church and say, hey, you need to become Presbyterians so that I can worship here. Uh, no, that would be foolish. He instead was like, man, I love, I love the fact that you guys worship like that. And I, and I hope you guys have a great gospel impact in your world around you. It's, it's an amazing thing to be humble enough to do that, right? To, to, to love one another in the midst of a disagreement, for instance. We have a major disagreement with the Presbyterian church. We don't baptize our babies, for instance. Uh, we, we baptize believers only. So that's a, that's a disagreement. We can disagree on that and still love one another in a way that still honors the Lord, right? And we can worship one another in spirit and truth, but we cannot, we have, we have things that divide our churches and that is one of them. But more than not, it's not doctrinal controversies that divide churches. It's simple things. 
It's, it's simple things that lead to foolish controversies, such as gossip and hearsay. It's things that you hear without context and then you act on. It's things that you see and form an opinion about without finding understanding. Those are the things that cause foolish controversies and division in churches more than you would realize. So let me, let me ask you a question. Do you know gossip when you hear it? Do you know what you're looking at when you see it? So this portion of the sermon, I, I want to make it clear. And some of you guys are thinking like, yeah, I know what gossip is. Anything you wouldn't say uh, to the person's face, you probably shouldn't say it to anybody. That's a pretty good check on what gossip might be. But I've read this nice book. It's called Resisting Gossip this week. Um, because I, I, I was, I was uh, kind, of, kind of wondering, like, why is gossip so unclear to us? Why is it unclear that we can participate in something and not see that it's harmful to other people? And so I wanted to be informed, and so my sister gave me a good recommendation. It was a great book. I recommend it highly so that you might train your hearts to be more like Jesus. Um, but I'm going to kind of summarize what I've kind of learned from that process. So uh, and one of, one of, the way that I'm going to do that is by asking questions. So it might be a little bit different for you. I apologize. I don't want to be super direct. I just want to ask you if you know the difference between gossip and not gossip. And when the difference between someone asking advice, the somebody asking or needing a listening ear for venting purposes or spreading gossip. What's the difference? Do you realize that that line is very, very thin? That line is extremely thin in a way that you would have no idea how much damage it can be when it sways to gossip. And when you're going to go to someone are you sure what you are sharing is appropriate? And it is not gossip. Because gossip breeds foolish controversies. It does over and over and over. So what is gossip? First off, the Bible talks about gossips. It personifies people as gossips. It says that you, you, don't, you don't hear the Bible saying, this is what gossip is, and here's the definition. What you see is avoid such people and there are gossips. So what is that? What is a gossip? Or what is gossip? Gossip is a bad report. Listen carefully. Gossip is a bad report in a limited context from a bad heart. Hear me when I say it. Gossip is a bad report in a limited context from a bad heart. A bad report, pretty simple. Something that is appear, has an appearance of bad or condemning or um, sullying of somebody's reputation. Limited context, obviously it's not the whole story. You gotta have the whole story. And even then you may not wanna share it because it might be damaging in a way that you shouldn't share it. From a bad heart. Now let me be honest. We can't read one another's hearts, can we? Steve, do you know what I'm thinking 90% of the time? No, <laughs> you don't even, my motivations are completely, like you don't actually know. 
We don't know how each other are interacting with one another on a heart level unless we ask the question, unless you actually ask them, what is your intention with this, right? But God knows your, the intentions of your heart and knows the motivations of which you do something. And so while, you know, this, this definition really doesn't encapsulate all of what gossip is, but it gives us a pretty good pointer at it. It's a bad report in a limited context from a bad heart. So when you are tempted to share information, I'm going to ask you a series of questions to ask yourselves before you sin or before you share information for it might become gossip. You may not know it's gossip. You may not know, but ask yourself these questions. Is what I'm about to share something that could harm this other person's character or reputation? Am I trying to persuade somebody of something with assumptions or with facts? Am I seeking advice from a brother or sister on what to do with this information that I have? Or do I want them to act on this information? Do you understand the difference? One is asking, hey, brother, I don't know how to process this. and I don't know what to do with it. Another one is, I'm telling you this so that you act on it. Yeah, to be honest, that's, that's, really, for, that's really in your own head. You, I can't decide, I can't even read that. That's a hard posture. Am I willing to share the whole story, words and all? No half-truths, no concealing the facts, no speaking vaguely to protect oneself or others. And the reason why I'm putting that part there, and the reason why this guy, this, this author says it this way, is because you don't want to, in, to share information about somebody that may or may not be true, only to find out that it's not true on the other side of things. And so being vague about something and not sharing the whole truth of what you know is probably concealing something from somebody. It's just, it's just a, a very weird way of going about something that shouldn't actually be happening. You see, gossip can start foolish controversy in general because it either leads someone to do something without proper context or it sullies another's reputation without facts. Now, let me be honest here. You can ask for advice from a brother. Do it. Do it. Ask for advice how to handle things. Ask for advice on what you should do with this. But asking for advice and being adamant about that does not lead you to act. The person you're acting, asking advice from. Does that make sense? If I'm asking for advice from you, your job is to give me advice, not to take action. We must hold one another with love and with believing the best about that person. Remember, love hopes all things. It believes all things. It does not come with slander, and it does not come in foolishness, but rather it seeks understanding. Now, the reason why I'm kind of placing it this way, if you're tempted to share a piece of information, is because your information might be one-sided. You don't know that. Proverbs 18, 17 warns us that the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines them. So if you are tempted to give a half-truth or conceal full portions of the situation or speak vaguely to protect others, then you should probably not say anything at all. 
You should probably go to your brother and seek understanding. You should not share that information because you don't know what to do with it. But if you are generally asking for advice, ask for advice. And if you're receiving that person's question, give them advice. Do not act. Withhold judgment out of love and respect. For those who are receiving information, and these are your sets of questions that you need to consider when you're hearing something like this. Because you need to be able to weigh the validity of a claim or the way, weigh what is being sent to you. So here's some just general questions you need to ask yourself. Is this person trying to win me with what they're saying? Is this person's claim seemingly opposite of what I already know to be true? Does this person make a biblical argument or is he merely making an observation about something? Does this person make a, or has this person consulted with a responsible party and received an explanation for what they are concerned about? Because here's the worst thing that can happen, or not the worst thing that can happen. If you're going to share some information with somebody, you need to be willing to go to that person and ask them if it's true. For instance, if you see somebody wearing an inappropriate, I don't know, inappropriate shorts, um, are you willing to go to that person and say, hey, your shorts are really inappropriate? Have you thought about what that might mean? But you don't go to somebody and say, hey, have you seen that person's shorts? Look at them. Their heart must be so lost. Right? That's, but that happens all the time. Right? You know the person who's receiving that information? You should go, and we're going to go talk to them. And be kind enough and loving enough to walk them to that person and say, hey, uh, so-and-so, we're concerned that you're wearing, what you're wearing is really inappropriate. Can you please uh, consider your actions? See, we're told to not judge by appearances, but right, judge with the right judgment. We might need to be able to consider what we are being told because Proverbs 18, 13 warns us if one gives an answer or if one acts, before he hears the whole thing, it is to his folly and shame. Be careful at what you hear and act upon. Because if you act on one-sided information, you will find yourself embroiled in foolish controversies unnecessarily. You will. It's, poss- it's not just possible, it will happen. Instead, follow 1 Peter 4, 8, when it says, basically, how do we avoid these foolish controversies? We keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. You don't know what's going on in their hearts. You don't know that that was the last pair of shorts that they could wear. You don't know. But you won't know unless you ask. And you won't know unless you love. Love covers a multitude of sin. And now I've said a lot of things about gossip, and I realize that some of you are thinking, why are we talking about gossip? We're talking about the foolish controversies that were started by a doctrinal problem, so on and so forth. I think it's because we have a doctrinal issue and it's called relating to one another. The, the, the majority of the problems that we have had in the past 10 months, and even before that, is because people talk about one another, but not talk to one another. There's a famous missionary, and I cannot remember her name for the life of me, 
Famous missionary that said, uh, said, I don't talk about one another or anybody anymore. I talk to them. She found herself too many times trying to figure something out with somebody else and all to find out that it was wrong what they were trying to say, see. Like the appearance was one thing and they were trying to operate on appearances. She's like, forget it. I'm just gonna talk to this person because it honors them with the grace that I have been honored with. So we move on. Verse nine, we're supposed to avoid distractions from grace. Verse 10 tells us that we need to redirect one another to grace. Redirect one another to grace. Verse 10 says this. As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and twice, have nothing more to do with him. Now you might be thinking, that's really harsh. But notice what he's trying to do. He's trying to go directly to this person. The truth is that foolish controversy, dissensions, quarrels cannot be avoided. So Paul is giving Titus and us a strategy to deal with these types of people and situations. It's not just a strategy, it's based on Matthew 18 itself. Exactly what Jesus had said. See, notice he addresses Titus's actions to be directly toward the person who stirs up division. Not about the person, but toward the person. Not based on mere speculation, but on fact, with confidence and knowledge, with wisdom and gentleness. Not on hearsay or gossip, but actual evidence based on witnesses. I don't know if you know this. The Bible has very high standards for calling people out on their sin. In Deuteronomy, it says, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, do not admit a charge against one another. And then it it applies that to an elder later on, but that standard of sin still has to be there. You can't just assume their sin or presume their sin. There is or there is not. And so he's repeating that we are not to be suspicious, but to go directly with actual evidence. Like I said, Paul's repeating Matthew 18 here. And the sin of division must be addressed directly with the one who is knowingly or unknowingly doing it. So let's, I want to look at Matthew 18 very quickly. Matthew 18, 15 says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Notice he doesn't say, go tell him about something that you heard was his fault. No, go tell him his fault. He says, and between you and him alone. Why would he say between you and him alone? It's because you are trying to have a measure of grace and love for one another, that you keep the circle of sin equal to the circle of knowledge about that sin. To expand it is to bring in possible more division, to bring in and breed more gossip, bring in questions where there shouldn't be questions. And you need to be able to keep it between you and your brother alone as long as you possibly can. Now, this doesn't mean you tell him once and he needs time to consider it, but it's your, friend, your time frame or, or, or whatever. No, you give him the opportunity to hear and digest because they may not realize what they were doing with sin in the first place. Maybe they don't even realize that it was something that happened. But you need to afford your brother grace and time and long-suffering to be able to recognize that he has sinned against one, another person. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, bring two or more, or one or two, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, these two or three witnesses are not the people who have noticed, 
or seen this sin necessarily, but they are people who are witnessing this person making the charge. Okay, so it's a different, different thing. It's great if you have those witnesses, but in this case, it's, it's, it's a, hey, I've told my brother that he has sinned against me. That kind of witness, witness that. And then if he refuses to listen, tell the church. And if he refuses to him, even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's basically what we've read, right? After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Now, division is a, is a much more toxic thing. And so we need to deal with that a little more swiftly and directly. But this is, in the midst of this conflict, we have a redirection toward grace. You're warning the brother, not condemning him. You're bringing him to his, the knowledge of sin. You're not levying God's sword upon his throat. Do not stick your brother with a blade that you do not understand. In fact, you should probably reserve judgment altogether because you are not the judge. Christ is the judge. Have the grace to be able to hear and to walk with your brother in the presence of division, in presence of sin. As the people of God, we must approach one another in this mind of unity and grace toward, to turn one another away from sin. Remember, redirect people away from their sin into grace because we cannot leave each other in sin, but we cannot spec act on speculation either. We cannot ignore the pain of others, but we cannot act on pain alone. We cannot allow division in the body, and we cannot act with any other motive rather than love. Otherwise, you will find yourself in sin. Love one another above all else. Keep the unity and the bond of peace. See, our dealing with conflict and dealing with sin should be a redirection back to the grace that God has provided to us in Christ. That their sin, if it is true and foundable, is a redirection back to the loving kindness that God has shown to us, the goodness that God has given to us, the mercy that he has had on us. It is not a condemnation, but it is a revelation of grace itself. So how do we do this? How do we avoid acting unjustly? How do we um, approach one another in conflict? Matthew 18 is sitting right there, but I wanna give you some, a little bit more preparation steps before you do. First, and here's the three, the three steps right away. Pray, meditate, and then relate. Pray, meditate, relate. And I'm gonna explain all three, so don't, don't worry. First, you need to be praying. Praying that you are, have the right heart posture toward this person that has sinned against you or that there is conflict with. You need to pray that you have the right grace in your mind and the motives that you have in your heart as far as you know to be able to address this person with humility. And then you need to meditate. What do we meditate on? We meditate on godly counsel, on the scriptures themselves. For instance, Proverbs 4.23, I have this kind of stuck in my head because one of my professors used to sing it all the time. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Why does he say that? He says that because you do not want to find yourself wrapped up in the mess that this is controversial mess is happening in. You want to avoid being a part of it. 
but you want to warn your brother. You need to seek out advice from godly counsel that points you to scripture, not to their own thoughts. Points you to the word and how it talks about sin and grace, not to your own actions and thoughts and words. Remember that the measure of grace that you give in these situations are the kind of grace that you will receive at, at the end of it. Another way to meditate on it is to memorize the Proverbs that train our hearts to take every thought captive to Christ. See, Proverbs chapter 18, I've been quoting a lot from it today. You you might just want to go look at it. It's very direct. Um, it's, It's also a very good starting point for how to avoid controversy and to seek reconciliation with one another. And then finally, we relate. So we pray, we meditate, now we relate with our goal of warning this person to repent for unity's sake, not winning an argument, not exonerating another person even, but for restoration between me and this brother or this, these two brothers, whatever it is. Brothers, sisters, doesn't matter. Because we do not know the intentions of the heart, so we need to be humble enough to acknowledge that there is something outside of our knowledge. You aren't omniscient. You aren't God. You can't read hearts. And our goal should be grace, not strife or envy or winning an argument. But if you do not have direct knowledge of sin, that is, you didn't witness the sin nor understand that there has been sin and there are two or three witnesses to it. Instead, you have heard a piece of information that may or may not be gossip concerning a fact. You must ask questions before making any judgments. And honestly, you should probably defer judgment altogether. Because to act on something without questioning it is to act in isolation, not with grace toward the body. Proverbs 18, one and two says this, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Chapter, verse two, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only expressing his opinion. We want to be people of understanding and wisdom, people of love and grace, not fools. So let me exhort you with what we have just seen in Titus 3, that if there is sin, please go to your brother. If you have a misunderstanding or don't understand something, go to that person who is responsible for it. Don't let it fester. Don't let it sting longer than it needs to. Don't let it sit there forever and go, I'll deal with it, you know, in time. No, deal with it. Be specific. If you know sin, I want you to approach your brother with specific sins. Warn them specifically with scripture and then ask them to repent specifically according to scripture. Any ambiguity here saying we're trying to avoid ambiguity, we're trying to be real particular, will inevitably lead to more confusion and more division, not actually restoration. So I want to give you some examples about humble question asking. Say you don't know if there's sin. Say, Say there's just something out there that's controversial and you're like, I don't know anything about this, but I'm not to deal with it. I need to ask how to handle this, but you don't really know how to ask how, how to handle it? Well, go to your brother and ask, this, ask him this question. 
like this, or these kinds of questions. Hey, I'm seeing this. What is your thought process for thinking about through your decision? Or, hey, this is really different for me. I'm not really sure what this is. Can you explain to me why we do this this way? I heard uh, that this was a particular position of your church. Can you help me to understand what you mean if that's true? See, we're asking good questions that are grace-filled so that we might put ourselves in the position of a learner, humble, so that we might understand one another and love one another, bear one another's burdens. See, as for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, that might seem harsh. But the reality is, if you do this specifically with warning them with scripture and asking them to repent according to scripture, then there is no grounds for what needs to be done, especially if you're acting on fact and not hearsay. But if this person will not repent, then you must put them out from amongst you so that the little leaven does not leaven the whole lump. See, we must conduct ourselves to be more Christianly in conflict. So with that, we, we've seen two points. We have avoid distractions from grace and we have re, uh, redirect one another toward grace, right? And these results will result in unity. They will. If this person really is a Christian that you're approaching and warning, then he will, he will eventually repent of his sins and return. But if he is not, then time will tell. So let us not act on hearsay and gossip. Let's not find ourselves in the midst of foolish controversies, dissension and division. Let's not uh, do anything but seek understanding with one another. We all have different thought processes. We all have different heart postures too. But you don't know them unless you ask. And so assume the best of your brothers and your sisters. Restore one another with gentleness and faith. Let us not separate from one another because of misunderstandings. Let us remember that Christ is our unity above all else. Let us meditate on that truth today because Christian conduct and conflict leads us to unity, not division. Let's be unified even in the midst of conflict. Would you pray with me?